In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country, the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Limelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Well, it's, um, it's a privilege to be back here, and um, it, I look forward to it, not only because my kids love the, the coffees and bagels afterwards, they're very excited about that, but um, you guys welcome me back so warmly. Uh, several people are like, welcome back, welcome back, and just, uh, you know, I don't expect you to remember me, but you did, so they, thank you. I, I appreciate that warmth uh, that's in this room today. Um, also, it smells really nice in here, so, yeah, like right here. I don't know what you guys did, but it smells really good. Um, yeah, it, it's a privilege to be here to minister the, uh, to you all, but I also think about this as an opportunity to, to minister to Fletcher and his family, right? They got a, a, a week off, basically, uh, and got a, a chance to just breathe and uh, enjoy one another. His children got to enjoy the presence of their dad just a little bit more this week, and so um, I'm thankful for that. And if you guys didn't know, it's really hard being a pastor, very hard, um, did it, yeah. <laughs> I did it for a decade or so, and uh, it's, it's tough. And I know what a gift it is to just have somebody sort of take on the, the labor of love that it is preaching um, to God's people. And so um, I would hope that you guys all just thank him. Uh, whenever you get a chance, uh, just let him know that you're thankful for his leadership and stewardship over the church uh, because the work that's happening here isn't isn't easy, it isn't light all the time, Um, um, although it's joyful and fulfilling. um, Yeah, your your thanks, your your words, your affirmation, that goes a long way. So I hope you'll do that today. So join me as we pray uh, before we get into God's word. Lord, we recognize right now this time as we pause and open our ears and our Bibles and sit. None of this will be fruitful if you don't speak. So I ask and I plead that through your words that you would speak. That your words would ring louder than any person's voice in this room. That it would reach deep into our souls. Plant and get rooted and bear the fruit that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So however counterintuitive it sounds, um, it's often true that the harder you try, the, the more effort you put into something, the, the more you do sometimes, the worse it becomes. Right? For example, if you take a fistful of sand, the way that you keep that sand in your hand isn't to grip it tighter, right? What happens if you grip it tighter? It starts to force itself out of uh, your fist, right? Um, In fact, if you are kneading dough, maybe you guys made some bread 
uh, over the Thanksgiving uh, holiday. I haven't done this, but I heard. If you, if you need dough, there's a time when you should stop. If you keep needing it, if you keep mixing in and, and you keep making it um, a little harder and harder, it, it, it gets too tough. You get chewy and tough bread. One example for this, uh, for me, is sleep. So I have almost no trouble falling asleep, okay? The, the problem is I can't stay asleep. Anyone else? Okay, just me, cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, if it's 8.30 and my, my buddy's on a couch, like I fall asleep like that, no problem, lights out, I'm done, game over. No problems falling asleep. But my problem is I can't stay asleep. The thing is, once I'm awake, no matter what I do, I, I, I've, I've tried turning off my phone, I've tried, uh, you know, melatonin and magnesium and what all those other things that people tell you to try, herbal teas, it's one of those things where it feels like the harder I try to sleep, the less I sleep. Sometimes I'm laying there in bed. I'm just like, stop thinking about stuff. Stop thinking about stuff. So just stop trying to keep my mind from racing. And the harder I try to calm my mind, the more I stay awake, the less I seem to sleep. In a lot of ways, I think our relationship with God can suffer from too much effort. We, we can meddle with things in such a way that distract us from the, uh, the way that God is intending to work in our lives. And for Americans especially, we have a hard time letting God just do his thing, right? We're impatient people. We think we're, we're good at making things happen for us. We, we tinker, we step in, and we think it's going to help. We, we can't wait for what God is going to do. We're unhappy with the course our life is taking, so we try to change things up. We're, we think that it's going to unlock some sort of satisfaction that um, we've yet to experience, only to find out that we should have just left it alone. This is where uh, surrender, this is why surrender is so difficult for Christians, especially Western Christians. We're so used to believing that it's our own effort and our own ingenuity that leads to gain and satisfaction. But the Bible tells us over and over and over again that no amount of human effort or ingenuity will secure our flourishing. Instead, it's only the invisible hand of God who providentially provides abundant life for his people. Let me say that again. No amount of human effort or ingenuity can secure flourishing. It's only the providential, providential that was a weird little slur, slang that came out. Uh, it's only the providential hand of God that ab- uh, provides the abundant life for his people. That's why the path to satisfaction isn't gained towards striving and straining. Satisfaction is only found when we surrender. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight, right? So this morning, with that lens, I want to turn your attention to this Old Testament book of Ruth. And we'll look at the very first chapter. 
And as you're getting yourself there in your Bibles or your, your apps, one interesting note about Ruth and how she connects to Jesus. In Matthew's, first, uh, the Ma- Matthew's gospel in his first chapter, uh, the way that he account- starts the account of Jesus' life is unlike all the other gospel writers. He begins his account of Jesus' life and work uh, with a genealogy. Now, genealogies may be interesting to us. There's family lineages may be interesting to us. Maybe you bought a Black Friday 23andMe kit or something and you're very excited about that. But they don't hold the same social weight as they did back then. In fact, the purpose of a genealogy was to announce to the world what type of person you were, who, what you were all about, what characteristics you possessed, what your agenda was, and it was to broadcast to the world who you were. And one of the most interesting things about Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 was that it didn't just account for all the males and the fathers in his line. Of the 41 names in Matthew's genealogy, five of them were women. And that's unusual. So what it tells us is that Uh, Matthew couldn't account for uh, Jesus' revolutionary life, what he was all about, his agenda, without accounting for the value that these women brought to the redemption story. But even more so, as you dig into these stories, if you look at the names in Matthew's uh, genealogy and dig into the names, uh, the stories of the, the names of the women there, what you'll realize, each of them brings a different understanding of Jesus's work, of his life, of his ministry, and what he was all about. And today, we get to think about and talk about Ruth, one of those five women mentioned in Jesus's genealogy. Ruth was a mother of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. So this morning, I want to briefly tell you about Ruth's story, and in doing so, I hope you'll hear two clear themes. One, God's providence. And two, the gospel promise. So God's providence and the gospel promise. So let's first look at God's providence. We'll only get to unpack the very first chapter of Ruth's story, but I highly recommend you read the rest of the chapters. There's only four, uh, because it's one of my favorite stories of the Bible. It's so short, which is nice, and it's got this beautiful symmetry to it. It's got beautiful language. It's one of those books like, um, like Jonah, if you've ever read Jonah, where it feels like every single word in this story uh, has a purpose and a meaning. It's not wasted. It's dripping with so much meaning. It's such a good book. But funny enough, the main character uh, in this very first chapter isn't Ruth. The story begins with a woman by the name of Naomi. Uh, it begins by telling us the um, religious and political context into which we find ourselves in Naomi's story. The writer tells us the story takes place during the time of the judges. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that period in history, uh, all you need to know is that it was a vicious cycle. Here's how it went. One, the people would cry out for a deliverer. God would provide that deliverer. The people then totally ignored God and did whatever they wanted to. And then God would let them suffer the consequences. Rinse, repeat, recycle over and over and over again. 
Now that's all helpful because uh, the author is setting us up to understand the, the cycle and how th- it affects Naomi's story. And the first person we're introduced to is Naomi's husband. His name is Elimelech. Now, here's the irony. Elimelech's name is translated to, my God is king. My God is king. And this God, his king, had providentially placed Elimelech and his family in the city of Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. And what's the very first thing we hear Elimelech doing? It says he wants to leave the house of bread because there was a famine in the land. In other words, God drops this man in the middle of a bakery, and because they ran out of donuts that day, he decides to pack his bags and find food somewhere else. He doesn't understand how good he has it. He's living in the house of bread. God's placed him there. Even worse, Elimelech doesn't travel just to any neighboring country. Of all the places he goes, he goes to Moab. Now, to help you understand why that's a big deal, moving your family from Bethlehem to Moab was like an American family in search of freedom and opportunity, moving from Boston, Massachusetts to Pyongyang, North Korea. Not a great decision. Moab was a godless, destitute country. But Elimelech got a tip from somebody and thought he would take matters into his own hands and try to figure out himself, and he set out to leave God's house of bread in search of some crumbs in the country of Moab. So we're off to a good start, okay? Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, find themselves in Moab. Now, if you know any Hebrew, maybe you do, uh, you now realize that moving to Moab wasn't the first poor decision of Elimelech's life. The man named his sons Malon and Kilion, which translate respectively to sickly and frail. (laughs) Spoiler alert, okay? Um, Now, before they can even unpack their bags and settle in, verse 3 says that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. This is a huge understatement, but being a widow is a huge setback in life. But she's got her sons. Okay, so she can at least kind of uh, uh, trust her sons to take care of her, right? Well, maybe. Because we read that both her sons take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah and Ruth. Now, both of them, after 10 years, uh, after relocating to Moab, both Malon and Kilion die, leaving Naomi widowed without sons, without any grandchildren. In just five verses, we see Naomi go from safely living in the house of bread to widowed and childless in the streets of Moab. Naomi had nothing because she didn't trust God to provide everything. And and this is why I think the story resonates so much with me because it's, it's so relatable. Now, I have not um, 
experienced the death of my spouse or my children, but I do know what it looks like to think the grass is greener on the other side and only to find out when I got there it actually wasn't. It was actually worse. How many times have you guys been in a similar situation where you thought, you know what, I'm just not satisfied with my lot in life right here. I'm going to go make a change and and pursue satisfaction over there only to find out all that effort was in vain. It didn't actually satisfy you. You went searching for prosperity only to find it didn't fully satisfy. You, you, you moved uh, across the country thinking that all your problems will be solved by moving to a different place in a different time, but it just seems like your problems have followed you where, where you are now. You sacrificed so much for maybe a relationship thinking it was going to fill you, but on, it's only left you empty. And maybe some of you are in that season of disappointment right now. Like Naomi, maybe you're not just disappointed, but you feel like God is out to ruin your life. In verse 20, she goes as far as to change her name. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? In other words, she's in a season of ruin right now, experiencing the dark night of the soul. She's she's yelling out to God, crying out to God, God, how could you do this to me? If you really loved me, how would you let me suffer through all of this? Are you even here? It's like the psalmist in Psalm 13, if you've read the opening lines of that, he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And if you're in that season of ruin, I want to show you something. In fact, I want to point to something that's actually not visible in the story. One of the beautiful uh, literary devices that the author uses is, um, is how God is, is hardly ever mentioned. It feels like God is not even there. There are no words from God. There's not a prophecy of God. There's no vision from God. There's really nothing about God, really. God is seemingly absent from Ruth's story. And, and we can mistakenly think that God is totally absent, just not there. But as you keep reading Ruth's story, you'll begin to see the invisible hand of God everywhere. Later in the story, as Ruth uh, goes out to look for food, she just happens upon the plot of land that belongs to Boaz. And this guy, Boaz, happens to be from the same family as Elimelech which conveniently works out for Ruth as Boaz is eligible to take her in as his wife. There's a bunch more other things, but uh, there's this quote that's attributed to Albert Einstein that I think fits here. Coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. 
That's one of the truths I hope uh, you'll take away from this, that even in your season of ruin, even in your seasons of deep despair and disappointment, even when you've made a mess of things and it hasn't all worked out the way that you had planned, even when you've walked away from the house of bread looking for crumbs in Moab, God's invisible hand providentially provides for his people. It's like a tapestry. If you look at a tapestry the wrong way, it just looks like a mess of thread. It looks like a nest of threads, all random, doesn't make sense, and it looks like a knotted mess. But you turn it over, you give it some perspective, and you begin to see how beautiful uh, a work of art it is and the intended vision of the artist. God's invisible hand providentially provides for his people. Now, what does he provide? Well, let's keep reading. It's the gospel promise. So Naomi cuts her losses and decides she's got to move back home to Bethlehem. Uh, and she catches wind that the Lord somehow provides for his people. Duh, right? Like, of course he does. So before she leaves, she sits her two Moabite daughters-in-law down and, and tells them, hey, uh, I, I want you to go back to your homes. I, I want you to go back, start fresh, find a new husband, start a new family, it's going to go better for you. You don't want to follow me. And she kisses both of them on the forehead, and as she waits for them to, to both walk away, she realizes that these girls are not budging. They're not going to leave. And both of them say, no, we'll return to your people. So Naomi calmly reasons with them. She's like, come on, girls, think about it, okay? Okay. Um, you have no future if you follow me. There's nothing for you where I'm going. I'm too old to find another husband. You both are young enough to go find a new husband, uh, make a new family, and start fresh. But if you insist, let's just work this out. Let's explore the alternative here. Let's, let's say I find another husband. Let's say that I even end up having kids, which I'm too old to have, as you know. And let's pretend that both of my children happen to be boys. Are you telling me that you're going to wait until these boys become men that you can marry? Let's not kid ourselves. Let's be reasonable. Look at me. The Lord has gone out against me. He's, he's done with me. I'm finished. I have no future. I came here to be fulfilled, but I'm leaving empty. You don't want this for yourselves, right? So hearing this, Orpah reasonably kisses her mother-in-law and starts walking back home. And then in verse 14, we read one of the most beautiful, surprising verses. It reads, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. When asked why, Ruth, this young Moabite widow, looks at her mother-in-law and says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You realize what's happening here? At a surface level, yes, it is a beautiful display of loyalty and friendship, and Ruth is such a gift to Naomi in this season, especially after she's lost almost everything in her life. But I want to draw you even deeper to what's happening here. What Ruth is saying is that she would rather forsake all of the relative safety and all of the things that she's known in Moab to follow Naomi into an unknown future, into an unknown future that God has promised. She's ready to leave her birthplace because she's experienced new birth. This is a confession of conversion for Ruth. Ruth is leaving behind her Moabite gods, and she says, I want to pursue your God, Naomi, Yahweh. She even calls out his name. She, she says the covenant uh, God's name here in this confession. This isn't some sentimental vow of loyalty. It's a declaration of her life's new allegiance. She even says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. At that time, the land on which you were buried uh, was sacred, right? Your burial ground was the final flag you planted to testify of the God that you worshipped. See, what's happening here is God is making it painfully clear to anyone that would listen, the gospel promise of abundant life is for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Moabites were Gentiles considered outside of God's promises, and not just any Gentiles, but some of the most reviled and disgusting Gentiles. Ruth was a woman, and not just any woman, but a widow in that society. And when the promise of abundant life was offered to this young Moabite widow, she clung to it and would not let go, and the abundant life was hers. The abundant life is not just for the elite and the powerful, The abundant life is for the poor and blind. The abundant life is not just for folks living in Jerusalem or Bethlehem, it's also for those that live in Moab. The abundant life, as Fletcher said, is not just for the religious and irreligious, it's for all of us, everyone who would come and hold on to it. Galatians 3.28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are uh, all in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is why Jesus came. That's why Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy that includes Ruth's name. Jesus was not born on some throne. Jesus was born in a manger. Jesus wasn't born to princes. Jesus was born to peasants. When Jesus was asked, hey, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know what his response was? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. Sitting on a hill, God's 
promise of abundant life is for you, it's for me, it's for everyone who believes. It's for anyone who would cling to Jesus by faith. And like Ruth, it means we are forsaking everything we have once known to follow Jesus into the promise not yet fulfilled. A hope of what's to come. See, at the beginning of the story, Elimelech and Naomi were not satisfied with their current uh, situation and uh, they weren't satisfied with just having God. So they wanted God plus something else. And in that pursuit of the something else, they ended up empty-handed and left with nothing. But here, Ruth embraces having nothing, no clear future, only the hope of what's to come, because right now, she has everything she needs in God. If you keep reading, what you'll see is Ruth is about to gain Everything. She not only experiences an abundant life, but she is forever included in the line of Jesus' great promise. See, the math is really simple. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the chapter ends in the most fitting way It reminds us of the eternal hope that we have in Christ. No matter how bleak our present situation is, it reminds us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 22 reads, So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you hear the hope of what's to come? That's the beginning of God's redemptive work in Naomi and Ruth's life. As they leave behind the darkness of Moab, enter into the light of a promising barley harvest in Bethlehem. You see, when you follow Jesus... There will be seasons of ruin, I promise you there will be. There will be seasons of despair and darkness. It will happen, but you will not be ruined. You might be afflicted in every single way, but not crushed, as Paul says. Perplexed, but never driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but never destroyed. And the Apostle Paul later goes on to say, for this light, momentary affliction, is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. You may be in a season of famine and ruin right now, but I want to remind you that God's invisible hand providentially provides for his people. If you can believe that promise, I urge you to cling to Jesus and never let go. Because soon and very soon, you will arrive at Bethlehem at the beginning of a barley harvest. Let's be a steadfast, a patient people 
trusting that the Lord will provide everything that we would ever want and more. Let's be a people surrendered to God and his work. For this promise of an abundant life is for you, it's for me, it's for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's fascinating how we think that we can take matters into our own hands and come up with a better outcome. I pray that you would help us and save us from that. Father, will you protect us from our own futile meddling? Help us to surrender, trust that what you do is better, far greater. What you promise is more abundant, more satisfying than anything we could secure on our own. Help us to believe that to our core. Help us as a people to patiently surrender, cling to Jesus, awaiting the promise of a harvest. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.